You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. The weekend is almost here, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this BS Session podcast. Uh, I'm not going to get into it right now because I went shed hunting for the first time. I put in 1.69 miles in like a, a two, two hour period, uh, walked through some really thick and nasty stuff on a piece of property that I have access to here closer to my house. And I found zero sheds. It is a bit early. I didn't expect much. This was more of a scouting mission. Um, but I tell you, I found some really good bedding areas that, uh, I think may be overlooked by some of the other hunters that, uh, hunt on this property. So I am excited to, uh, get back out there in about a month, uh, maybe three weeks and, uh, start, uh, really shed hunting this. It's, it's like 113 acres, hundred and 20 acres, something like that. And, uh, there's two big ag fields that run through it and everything that's not ag is really thick and nasty, uh, underbrush really. So that is, uh, and I'm not going to kind of, this is kind of a, I'm not, I can't tell you the name of the company. I can't tell you really what it is. Well, I can tell you that I tested it out. I tested out something new from a company <laughs> during this shed hunt. And uh, I'm, I'm, it's not a sponsor of mine, but uh, I'm pretty excited to share it once it does come out because I think it's going to, it's going to, I'm going to use it. But that doesn't really help you guys <laughs> out at all. So um, let's get into what we're going to do today. Today. I had a good conversation with a guy named Cody Altizer, right? And you're asking, what does Co Cody Altizer do? Cody Altizer may have a dream job. We all dream of traveling the world. Um, uh, he is a cameraman, and the stories that he he tells are the reason I want to want him on the podcast. He's he's young, I guess from industry standards, but he has some really cool stories about his travels, um, 
how he got into the position that he's in right now. But, uh, and we talk a little bit about a, a film that he's made, but, uh, just a really cool guy with a really interesting story. And to be honest with you, it's not even, it's really not even hunt based on hunting. Yes, it is because he films some hunts, but there's, there's a story beyond that. And hopefully you guys pick up on that. Um, when I was a kid and I think I've told this story in, uh, some of my other, uh, podcasts, either on the wired to hunt podcast or, uh, um, this one that we do, uh, probably on a different episode, but Sunday nights, it was a ritual in my household for me, my dad and my brother, we'd pop some popcorns, maybe get some peanuts and M&Ms and, uh, we would sit and watch, National Geographics every night or every Sunday night. It was a new episode and uh, it would be about, you know, Africa or Antarctica or, you know, Alaska or some crazy place in the world about some crazy culture or crazy animal. Um, and it was just, it was so foreign to us. I think that's why we found it interesting. And uh, Cody, he gets to live that firsthand and he gets to not only film it, but actually go there and live it too. So uh, just another reason I wanted to get him on the, on the uh, podcast. So uh, it's going to be a good one. I, I lost track of time actually. And just, it's, you know, it's a good podcast when you sit there and it's not even like you're recording. You are just trying to have a conversation with a guy um, who has, you know, information that you genuinely want to know. So, uh, but before we get into today's podcast, let's hear from John Livingston from DeerLab.com about some of the plans that DeerLab offers. We have two main sets of plans. We have month-to-month plans that you can start and cancel at any time, and we have annual plans. Uh, the annual plan, the lowest uh, cost for an annual plan is basically $7 a month, and that is good for up to 10 trail cameras in one property and 10,000 photos. And we go up all the way up to the guys that have tons of cameras, say, you know, hundreds of cameras, and we have an unlimited plan that will allow you to manage unlimited properties, unlimited trail cameras, unlimited photos. And that is um, a higher price plan. That's $408 a year or if you're going off a month to month, $34 a month, but that's a lot larger plan. But I would say most people, um, have between 10 and 20 cameras somewhere in that range. And so you're looking at seven to $14 a month. Uh, one great thing about our plans is they, you can start with a lower plan and always upgrade or downgrade. And we prorate all of that. So anytime that you haven't used is automatically pushed over to your next plan. If you upgrade. Bob, Bob, Bob. Now, I strongly suggest that you guys head over to DeerLab.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. Uh, DeerLab.com slash nine fingers. Play around with it a bit. Sign up for their free 30-day trial, and you only get a free 30-day trial through the Nine Finger Chronicles Um you know, being a Nine Finger Chronicles listener. So DeerLab.com slash Nine Fingers. Play around with it. Uh, sign up for the free 30-day trial period. Upload all the pictures that you can, that you possibly can to this software. And, excuse me, 
and really take a look at what this software can do for you. Um, it will literally, you know, if you use your own brain, uh, it, it has the potential to forecast deer movement uh, over a deer that you may have been tracking for several years, and you'll be able to say, okay, uh, when this upcoming hunting season com- comes, I have enough information to be in this stand at this wind during this time of year, and uh, statistically, I have a better chance of killing a, a target buck. So uh, be sure you go and check that out. Now, with all that out of the way, Let's get into today's BS podcast with Cody Altizer. All right, Mr. Cody Altizer, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you doing? I can't complain. I can't complain. Um, like I, I talked to you a little bit uh, before we started recording about how excited I am to get you on the on the podcast and just BS with you a little bit because when... When I was growing up, my dad and my brother, every Sunday night, we'd watch National Geographic. And I really like National Geographic because they were good at storytelling and they were they had really, really good imagery to back up that storytelling. And, uh, and you know, after looking through some of your Instagram uh, pages, finding out what you're all about and what you do, I'm like, man, I would love to get somebody on the, the podcast who does those things that I I've, I've admired over the years from a, you know, a storytelling and from a, um, you know, imagery standpoint. So that's why you're here, man. Right on. So today, um, basically I just want to BS with you a little bit, uh, and, and talk to you about your adventures, where you've been, what you do, all that good stuff. So I think we'll just start it off by, uh, kick, you know, where, where do you live when you're not on the road? Uh, I actually just bought my first house, uh, and I live in a little town called Lexington, Virginia. Uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, where I'm about an hour east of the Virginia West Virginia line, so I'm I'm up in the mountains. It's quiet. Um, it's away from people, which I like for the most part. And for sure, yeah, I, I've, I love Virginia. I grew up here. I've been very fortunate to travel all over the world, but I've found few places that I enjoy spending my time, you know, more than Virginia. So right, proud right. to call Virginia home. So did you? You grew up like a whitetail hunter then, right? Whitetail, turkey, you know, whatever was whatever you were able to hunt, you were hunting in in Virginia, right? Uh well yeah, most well actually just exclusively whitetail. I've never shot a turkey in my entire life. I, I like to film turkeys, I like to, to photograph turkeys, but I've never been never been bit by the turkey hunting bug yet. Um gotcha. but no, I, I shot my first deer when I was six years old uh with my dad. And yeah, I've been hunting whitetails ever since. And basically that's, that's really the only animal outside of a few bucket list species. But I could, if I could only hunt one animal the rest of my life, I'd be just as content to hunt whitetails as anything else. What is, what is it about whitetails that, you know, I I love, I love asking this question to, you know, whitetail nuts. What is it about that animal that you love so much? Oh, geez. I don't know. That's, um, 
it's something that's a question I ask I've asked myself for several several years now and I've never been able to articulate um, my thoughts or how I feel about the animal specifically which used to bother me at first but now um, it's something I actually I'm not proud of it but my inability to say how exactly I feel and what the animal does for me lets me know that you know how I feel about the animal is genuine and real um, I don't know it's it's there's just always been this genuine appreciation and connection uh, with the white-tailed deer. I've never been able to, like I said, articulate it or explain it, but I mean, they're, they're, they're just a fascinating animal. I think they're, they're very uh, underappreciated when you look at the scope of all the animals in the world. Yeah. You know, people talk about tough animals to hunt or you know, really, really impressive or cool animals. And people talk about sheep and, you know, elephants and killer whales and, people kind of overlook whitetails because they're so abundant, which I think um, is a testament to the species itself because they're so adaptive and they're so intelligent and they can survive anywhere, you know, and across the United States and Canada. They're, they're, I don't know. I've just always thought they were such an impressive animal and they've always, they've given me a sense of purpose and passion, I guess. So right. I just, I just, if I could spend my entire life just, dedicated to one animal then it would be the white-tailed deer without question right how how old are you i am 20 uh 27 okay so you've had a lot of things in your life and i'm just kind of this is kind of a setup for where this podcast is kind of going to go but you've done a lot of things in your life already that most people will never do and at 27 uh that's fairly young and you're you're cultured than most because you've had, you know, this, um, a bit, you know, you've had the opportunity to go travel, travel the world and, you know, being out there and traveling the world and being able to witness what you've witnessed. I know this is kind of a, a question that probably should have been, you know, should be asked at the end, but I'm going to kind of start with it. You know, what are some things that, that maybe before you went on these adventures that you, that you took for granted, whether it was an animal, you know, type of, uh, taking an animal for granted or, or taking like maybe the human humans in general for granted? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really, really good question. One that I've uh, thought about a lot, but never really come up with a good concrete answer. Um, I mean, there, there's so much that, you know, that in my career as a filmmaker, like I've, I've been to several of the more remote parts of the world, um, which have opened my eyes to a tremendous amount of beauty, um, consequently a lot of the ugly that's out in the world as well. And, you know, we come from the United States and here in the Western world, I mean, there's, there's just so much that we, we take for granted. I mean, and it's cliche to say these things, but you know, water, roof over your head, you know, your family, your friends. Um, but you go to a lot of these places that I've been really, really lucky to go to um, in South America, Africa, Australia, and you just see, um, well, you see how happy those people are with what little they have or they've been given. Right. And it just, it gives you a really unique perspective and it kind of puts things into its proper place for me anyway, right. that um, how, how easily you can live a happy life just, you know, stripping away all the unnecessary materialistic things that we think that we need 
Right. And just live a really simple, stripped-down life with your friends, your family. Um, I always tell people I'm a really, really simple guy. I need very, very few things to make me happy. Um, and I think traveling and seeing, you know, like a little kid in Africa, how, how close how closely he's bonded with his dog. I mean, that's something that I can relate to here in the United States. Like, I love my dog more than anything. Um, and just, you know, you, you see that how happy that, that little boy is with his dog, and you see how happy I am with my dog. And you realize we're not all that different. We're different, but we're the same. You know, so you just learn to appreciate what you have so much more. Gotcha. Now, I guess I, I, I didn't bring this up before because I'm – I'm kind of jumping all over because there's so much I want to ask you, but what, what do you do for a living? Uh, I, I guess if I had to, my Instagram bio is that I'm a a, uh, filmmaker, photographer, writer, um, and conservationist. So that's how I pay the bills. I freelance. I've never, I haven't worked for any one company um, as a contracted or as a, you know, as a full-time employee several, several years. I freelance completely. Uh, but yeah, that's what I do. I try to, uh, try to shoot cool footage, tell cool stories and make a living doing it. Okay. So how did you get your start? I mean, when, when you got out, did you go to college? Uh, no, I went to, well, I did go to college. (laughs) Sorry. I, uh, out of high school, I went to community college for two years. Um, I did just the general studies, I got my associate's degree in general studies. Um, I think I took a year off after that or something. I worked, worked at a farm down the road. Got really, really interested into uh, photography and film. I actually had an internship in Chicago with a website called bowhunting.com. I was up there for six, seven months. Really, really um, you know, lit the fire in me from a video and, and photography perspective and I've always had a big passion for the outdoors, obviously, and, and I did that job and it kind of opened my eyes that, hey, maybe I can make a living doing this. So once that internship was over, uh, I moved to North Carolina with my brother uh, and I enrolled in the Art Institute of North Carolina for photography, um, which was a pretty big deal. I was really excited about it. I went to three classes, I think, two or three classes in two days. Uh, and then dropped out because I realized I could teach myself if the exact same things they were teaching me without having to pay an arm and a leg to to do it. And then just kind of YouTube and Google has been my biggest teacher ever since then. And um, anything I need to learn how to do, you know, I look it up online and just kind of jumped in head first, started freelancing and been really, really fortunate more than anything to have found people who've given me opportunities and believed in me that, you know, hey, maybe this guy can... Yeah, you know, provide some value to what we're looking for. And, you know, one thing's led to another. And I've just been really, really lucky to travel all over the world and make a little bit of money doing it. So, so how did you get your start uh, becoming a photographer or a cameraman? Did you, did you put a resume out on some website saying, I am a photographer slash videographer. And here is some of like, here's some examples of my work. If you're, if you want to hire me, here's my contact information. Uh, yeah, well, actually, um, I mean, it's kind of been a series of steps. There's never been one, you know, I can, I can't point to one single event that's, you know, started at all. I guess if I, if I had to, I think it was 2011 or 12. Um, I, I had started to shoot some video, but I wasn't, really wasn't getting paid a lot to do it. 
Um, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I put together uh, a demo reel and I sent it to uh, Brandon Shockey, Jim Shockey's son. Um, and I sent him this demo reel and, and it wasn't even a situation where I was like, Hey man, this is my reel. Can I work for you guys? Um, you know, do you need any videographers? You know, I'm, I wasn't looking for a job. I just sent him my reel. Like, Hey man, this is what I've been working on. I was looking for some constructive criticism. I was like, can you tell me what I'm doing? Well, tell me what I need to improve on. Just point me in the right direction. Um, and I guess he was, you know, came away halfway impressed with what I'd thrown together and, um, asked me if I'd be interested in filming for Jim. And of course I said, yes. And that was, that was really my first big, uh, opportunity, uh, was filming for Jim. And that happened probably 2012, 2013. Okay. So you, you sent basically a highlight reel to Braylon Shockey, Jim Shockey's uh, son and said, Hey man, what, tell me, tell me some pointers. And he turned around and said, Hey, I like what you've done. Do you want to come follow my dad around the world? <laughs> yeah, more or less. More or less. That is that is bananas. You know, that's like that is like sending a resume into a dream job and getting it, right? I mean, is that did you when when he replied back to you saying, "Do you want to come film for us?" What what was your thoughts? I mean, what was your emotions? Was this like is this real? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I, I had zero intention. Like when I sent him that demo reel, um, like I said, I, I, that's when I was just basically learning the basics, just learning how to do, you know, basic filmmaking. I, I actually, it, it would be an insult to say that first reel had anything to do with filmmaking. Like it was, yeah. it was just, it was just pure videography. It was just clips um, thrown together. And I, I didn't think that I was capable. Um, I didn't think I was worthy or deserved to, you know, to work for Jim or to work for a production company of that level for several, several years, at least. And that's why I, you know, I messaged Brandon and it was like, Hey man, you know, point me in the right direction. You know, what am I doing? Well, I'll do more of that. What am I doing badly? I'll do less of that. You know, just give me some constructive criticism that I can take with me and just get better at my craft. So when he, you know, he sent me a message back, it was like, Hey man, I can tell that, you know, you've really put a lot of time and effort into this and you're, you're really, really passionate about it. Um, you know, my dad, Jim, he's always looking for, for cameramen he can take, you know, all around the world. Would you be interested in doing that? And I was like, yeah, man, of course, you know, why not? And then, yeah, that would, that's kind of, that would probably be the one, the one event that I could point to is, you know, that's how I got my quote unquote start. Right. And you were at that time, you were 24, 25 years old. It was four years ago. Um, so 20, probably 23, 20, 22. 22, 23. Yeah. Somewhere in there. All right. So you're this 22 year old kid, basically, you know, no offense. And Oh you... no, I'm still a kid now. at 27. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I could say the same thing and I'm almost 37. So, um, but you've, what was the next step? I mean, okay. Get in the car and drive to Canada or was I mean, did you have to go through some kind of process or were you like, were you just hired? Um, I kind of, I was kind of just hired. I mean, Jim, you know, the way his, you know, business is run, the whole production company, he has several cameramen. He has a couple in Canada and a couple in the United States. Um, 
but yeah, there was no process. Um, I think that was in the spring when I sent Brandon that message and he asked me if I was interested and then, you know, it took a little while for everything to transpire, but, uh, that fall I went on my first trip, uh, for Jim and that was to the Yukon, uh, to film, uh, moose and, uh, grizzly bears. And I mean, I, I, the best way for the best way that I've always found to learn something is to jump in head first. If you, if you, if you dip your toe in the water to see if it's cold or if it's hot and you start to overthink things and you question yourself, everything I've done so far in my life, it's just been, you know, all or nothing, jump in head first. Um, and then figure it out as you go, obviously, you know, that's a generalization, but you know, that's, that's how I operate is to take on something, take the bull by the horns, so to speak, and just jump in and get after it. So it actually worked really well. It's like, Hey man, this is your first gig. You're going to the Yukon you know, here's a camera, go film bull moose. It's like, all right, right on. I still don't know if I deserve or even belong to be here, but you know, I'll do my best. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that was, uh, it was, it was crazy how that all came together. Were you even, were you even concerned about what the pay was going to be or was this, or, or are you the kind of person where you saw adventure and you were just like, man, I will do, I would do this for free just to have those experiences. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wasn't concerned at all with how much they were going to pay me to this day. I mean, granted I'm 27. I have a house. I have responsibilities. I have bills to pay, but like you said, um, the, the adventure is always priority. Number one. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got asked last year, um, about, you know, before I went on a filming gig, yeah, we might be in some dangerous situations. Are you okay with that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, my response was, you know, I'd be more, I'd be more concerned with not living in, you know, living in the bush for a month or having these close and dangerous encounters with animals and getting paid less than I would be getting paid more to have a cushy, you know, job in the office where I have a nine to five and yeah. security and all that stuff. I 100% fits my personality. It fits my lifestyle to go after adventure, have a good time doing it. And then everything else will take care of itself. Right, right. So you, you get hired by Jim Shockey. Okay. First of all, dream job, right? And for anybody, anybody's right. like, hell yeah, I'd go follow Jim Shockey around. And you go to the Yukon, you go on, you get there and I take it. It's, I mean, is that where it, it set in? Like, did it set into you when you were leaving Virginia? When did it set in? And you're like, holy shit, I am now a professional cameraman for Jim Shockey. Oh, geez. I don't know. Um, I still don't even consider myself a professional. There are so many more people out there who are so much more talented than I am. I don't know why people pay me to do what I get to do. I'm not complaining, but <laughs> there are more qualified <laughs> and more talented people out there than I do. I consider myself an amateur um, without questions, but um, I don't know. I, I never really, it's never really sunk into me. It's all like, you said, it's, it's a dream job. And then I'm, I just, I've never had that time to just sit and think and get, let myself get comfortable, I guess, you know, to let myself think that, Hey, I've arrived. Right. Um, but no, I, in the Yukon, I mean, everything happened so fast. That particular hunt, um, it was supposed to be a 10 day hunt, I believe. And we were on the river uh, hunting moose and we ended up killing a big bull. Um, literally the first day of the hunt, when you fly into the bush in the Yukon, you have to wait, I think it's six hours before you can, um, legally hunt just because you're not allowed to spot game from the bush plane. So you, so you land and then you have to wait for six hours. 
um, until you can go out and, you know, hunt and shoot animals. And that's a lot. So we landed on the river and, uh, you know, we went up river, we waited our six hours that we took the boat up the river. And we, from the time we started hunting to the time we killed the moose was literally like less than an hour. It's the quickest hunt that I've ever been on. So, it, and it all happened so fast and I was so nervous. I probably psyched myself out. You know, I convinced myself, oh, you're going to the Yukon, you're filming for Jim Shockey, like you're in way over your head. This is going to be a nightmare. And then we go and we shoot this bull moose like in 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, right on. This is, this is a pretty easy gig. I could do more of this. Right. Right. So you, uh, I mean, you were, you were obviously prepared for, to grind it out, right? Were you mentally prepared or like for me listening to your story, it sounded like it happened so fast, right? I mean, you, you send in information, you get a job offer. How long, I mean, did you have months to prepare before you actually went up there or did you, was it just kind of a bing, bam, boom, I'm in the Yukon type of type of deal? Um, probably about a month. I had a month from the time that I found out that, yeah, I was going to the Yukon to when I actually flew into the bush. So, I mean, I, the thing with filming in the Yukon and we're filming somewhere in that type of remote wilderness is like, you can watch, you can watch footage, you can talk to people who've done it. Um, but you never really know what it feels like or what it's like to be in a situation like that until you're in that situation. So I tried to prepare myself best I could. Like I watched a bunch of footage that Jim had shot in the Yukon over the years. I talked to the other cameramen and some of the guides, you know, what to expect, but that was, that was my first remote wilderness adventure hunt. So I, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't have any of the right gear, but I tried to prepare myself mentally. Like, you know what? This is a 10 day hunt. We're living in tents for 10 days on the side of the river. I'm not going to be able to take a shower for 10 days. Um, you know, the food's not going to be great, this, that, and the other, but it, once you get there, you jump in head first, like I said, and then you just adapt and, and figure it out as you go. Right. So as a, as a fan of hunting and as a fan of nature, uh, but also you have responsibilities out there. Was it hard for you the very, on this very first trip to focus on your responsibilities as a cameraman and at the same time kind of enjoy, you know, a wilderness that you may have never seen before? Oh yeah. Without question. That's something that I still struggle with today. Um, you know, like you said, growing up as a hunter, growing up somebody who's been, and I, I was the same, you know, as you growing up, I watched National Geographic. I thought that'd be the coolest job in the world to go to these places. Um, I've always had a bigger passion for wildlife than I have hunting. So just seeing the animals and being in their habitat and being close to them um, has always been number one for me. And it's all, it's a blessing to have that as your job where, you know, you have something that you're passionate about and that you would do for free and that you enjoy doing so much. But at the same time, like, like I said, I've, I've been doing this for five or six years now, and it's still really, really difficult. Like you said, I have responsibilities. I'm not there to, you know, to, well, you know, I'm there to have a good time, but I'm not there to, you know, as a guide or a hunter, as a paying client to, you know, to sit back and cut up. I have a job to do that I'm getting paid to do, and I have to do it well. It's important to me to do it well. It's important to who I'm working for to do it well. And you really, it takes, it's a, it's really hard for me, you know, to really, really focus. Cause I mean, I get distracted so easily just by, I'd, I'd rather sit through a spotting scope and watch, you know, a pack of wolves feed on the caribou carcass, but you know, I can't do that because I got to document the experience. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of discipline and focus. And it's something I 
continually have to work at. Right, right. I remember my first, some of the first times I was behind the camera as a cameraman filming whitetail hunts. You know, a buck would be coming in, and I'm looking through the viewfinder, and then I slowly start fading away and looking at the the buck itself with my own eyes and not focused on, and then you, then you, it comes to, you're like, Oh God, I got to get this on before the guy shoots it. So, um, so that trip to the Yukon was, you know, you popped your cherry as far as, you know, a a real life videographer was concerned while you were there. Did you, I mean, I mean, it was a fast hunt, but did you run into any problems? Did you have any type of, um, did you have any type of learning experience while you were there? Um, the main thing was that the hunt and the filming was happened happened so quickly um, that the yeah that was I, that was the quickest hunt I've ever been on. So from the actual filmmaking perspective, I didn't really have a lot of time to make any mistakes or to um, you know have to overcome any adversity. The biggest thing and it was really important for me on that trip was to. Like I said, I was, it was a complete wilderness hunt, no communication, no showers, um, was learning how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Um, so like we, we killed the moose on the first day, but we ended up staying another six or seven days, you know, trying to kill a wolf or trying to kill a grizzly bear. So that really gave me an opportunity to, you know, to settle into a groove, you know, in the wilderness lifestyle, you know, sleeping in a tent. Yeah. Um, I, I, that was, like I said, that was my first adventure wilderness hunt. I'd never slept in tents for more than a night before I was going to be there for 10 days. And it just let me, you know, build up the mental dexterity to, to, um, I guess, understand and process what it's like to, to be on your own, to be that remote and to, uh, to do your job well in that type of environment. Right. Now, a lot of people will say, Hey, I want to do this. You know, I, you know, Cody, I want to, I wish I had your job until they actually have your job and they realize, holy cow, I don't like this as much as I thought I would. Um, did you have any type of second thoughts, uh, while you were out there or, um, you know, this first experience where, you know, I, I love this, but I'm, I'm a little homesick as well, or I miss my family or, um, I like, I like the, the real world better than this, which, you know, that sounds dumb, but I like, you know, civilization better than the remote wilderness. Did you have any type of thoughts like that? Uh, yeah, I still have thoughts like that. Never to where I second guess, you know, my decision. I, I'm always completely psyched about what I do for a living. Yeah. Uh, but when you go on these trips and you're away from home and you're away from your family, a lot of times without any communication, uh, you have a lot of time to yourself and you can get, I mean, you can get pretty lonely, I guess, yeah. for lack of better words. And I mean, I do, even to this day, if I'm gone for even four or five days or a month, like yeah, I miss my family. I miss, I miss my dog. I miss home. And your mind just drifts to, you know, what's comfortable and what you're used to. And then you think, you know, like I said, I never, I've never wished I had a different job, but those thoughts are always present. And I'm always, I'm always, you know, aware of what that feels like, which over time I've actually come to um, appreciate. Like you said, we were talking about perspective a little while ago. Um, when I go off on such you know, great adventures and far off places, it makes me appreciate what I have here at home so much more. And then when I'm at home, it makes me appreciate my job so much more. When I get home for, when I'm home for a week or 10 days or, 
you know, especially this time of year where it's really slow and you're cooped up inside during the winter, like, man, I get cabin fever and I get really antsy and I really want to go outside and I want to go, go on an adventure and do something. And it just makes you really thankful that I get to do what I do for a living. So it's kind of, you know, got to, got to look at it from both perspectives while I'm in the bush or while I'm out on an adventure. Yeah. I miss home and miss my family and miss everything that I'm comfortable with. But once I come back home and I get comfortable, then I miss the adventure. So it, it works out well. It's a, it's kind of a balance that I've learned to strike over the years. Right now, Jim Shockey as a person, I've, I, I've never real I've shook his hand once at the ATA show and said, Hey, I'm Dan. I, you know, I interviewed you and then, you know, then we interviewed him on the wired to hunt podcast. Um, is he, what's, what's he like? Oh man. He, um, he's probably the most driven, competitive, uh, person that I've ever met in my entire life. Really? Um, oh yeah. He, uh, and I've worked with a lot of uh, professional athletes and coaches over the years. Just, you know, a lot of what I do is, you know, hunting and outdoors, but I do some basketball and promotional work as well for, for basketball companies and, and whatnot. And yeah, Jim, he, he's very, very driven, very, very focused and highly, highly competitive. I always compare him to um, like Michael Jordan or Steve Jobs in that he's this, uh, you know, a type personality who has a tremendous work ethic and will not give up, who will not quit um, at all until he accomplishes whatever goal, you know, he set for itself, which, which for him more times than not is obviously an animal on a hunt. Yeah. And, you know, if he has 31 days if, to kill a sheep at the top of the mountain and he's camped out at the bottom of the mountain, he's going to walk from the very bottom to the very top every single day until he kills his sheep. And it's, it's really, really impressive to watch him work. Like I said, there are very, very few people in the world who have that competitive gene and that, you know, that, that comes so naturally right. that, you know, they just won't lose. They won't let themselves lose. Right. And it's, it's like I said, it's, it's really, 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 really cool to watch him work and you learn, learn quite a bit about yourself and from him just right. being around him. So working with him in some of these scenarios, some of these adventures, some of these hunts that you've been on, you know, I take it there's some times where mentally and physically you're exhausted, but you see somebody like that keep pushing and keep driving. Does that, does that help motivate you uh, to do your job better saying, Hey, I can't let this guy down a, because he's paying me B because I don't want to look bad in front of Jim Shockey. Right. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, not just with Jim, but anybody else that I've filmed over the years, a guide, Ivan Carter uh, is another one. They're, they're so driven to be successful that it's contagious. Like you said, when, you know, when I'm with these people, you know, they obviously believe in me enough to bring me along to, you know, to do my job. And I don't want to let those people down. Like it would, it would crush me to, you know, to have one of those guys that I'm working for, be like, man, you know, I'm disappointed in what you did. Like to me, that's a tremendous failure. That's worse than, you know, missing a shot, press, you know, pause recording, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, when you see somebody that's working that hard, yeah, you're like, man, you know, this is obviously very important to this person. It's important to me, you know, to be, to help this person be successful because they believe in me. Right. So it's, it's contagious and you feed off of one another's energy and it's, it's really, really cool. So, you know, you live, 
you live in Virginia and there, there's some mountains, you know, there, when you start getting into some of these other environments where we're talking gigantic elevation, right into the Rockies, into the Canadian Rockies. And then I don't know where else we'll get into where else you've been, where there might be some even higher elevation than, you know, like higher than 10, higher than 14,000 feet. How, how did you have to adapt to that? The, the environment Um, that you were filming in. It's, it's kind of uh, a situation again, like you said, like I said before, um, I always try to keep myself in relatively decent shape. I could do better, but you know, I try to keep myself healthy. And I'm, I'm only 27, so I, I am young, and I still have some. You know, hopefully, I have to get up and go about me for <laughs> as long as I live. <laughs> right. um, but what I can, and, and another part of it was like we had just talked about. You know, you see Jim, or you're with somebody, whoever you're filming, and, and they're so driven to to accomplish that goal that you know it really forces you to dig down deep within yourself and even if you're not prepared or you're out of shape you know you, you find a way to to acclimate yourself to whatever environment you're filming in and then you just figure out a way to will yourself to be successful to help this person be successful to tell this story um in a way that you're proud of right so you got back from the yukon tell us what happened next I mean, were you in in a, like a contract with Jim Shockey? Because you mentioned you you filmed for him for a couple more years. I mean, where else did you go? What else did you film with with him? Um, as soon as I got home from the Yukon, I actually I was home for like five days, and then I flew up to the Aleutian Islands um, and the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska. So I really didn't have a lot of a lot of downtime in between my first and second trip, but no, I've never had a contract or any long-term agreement with Jim. Like I said, most of the work that I've done over the years has been for Jim's company. Um, Sometimes it's with Jim. Sometimes it's with one of his clients or sponsors or whatever. Um, Yeah. I've, I've been to gosh, the Yukon four years now, the Aleutian islands, Vancouver Island, three times, Mexico, uh, Paraguay, which was a really, really cool story. I got malaria down there. Um, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Australia. Um, yeah, it's just, I've been really lucky to, to go all over. So, I mean, these things that you, you know, all these places that you've just mentioned to me are, are pictures, right? I've seen pictures of these places. I've, you know, I've seen pictures of Africa. I've, I've seen pictures of Paraguay or the Aleutian Islands, but I've never actually been there. Talk to us when, you know, talk to us a little bit about the difference between a picture and actually being there and being in, basically being in that picture. Right. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really cool. It's, and this is another thing that I've learned how to, that I've had to teach myself to do is to just be present um, wherever, you know, wherever I am. Obviously, I, I'm there and I have a job to do, but it's important to me personally to kind of remove myself from that job, whether it's late at night or you know, we have a lunch break or whatever, go find some time, create some time for myself alone right. to just let myself be in that environment so I can... I can process it and I can, you know, it's kind of difficult to describe, but just let yourself be there. 
instead of worrying about what you have to do or what you have to accomplish. And then when you can let yourself truly be present, you know, on the top of a mountain in the Yukon or, you know, on the side of a river in Africa, then you can really reflect and, and let yourself appreciate where you are. And, it, and it's, it's difficult to describe because, it's, I mean, you have to feel it more than anything. You know, I can't tell you what it means to me to sit or how it feels to, you know, to sit on a river in Mozambique and watch the sunset. Um, but no, it's always been really, really important to me and a priority wherever I go to separate myself from my job and what I'm there to do to just, to just, like I said, just be present, um, reflect, be thankful that this is where I am and this is what I get to do. Okay. So you're traveling all over the world. Um, do you have any stories from, from, uh, from us where, you know, you're, you're from Virginia and whether it's been an encounter with an animal, whether it's an encounter with a human or maybe just a, a terrain, any scary or life threatening or, um, dangerous type of experiences that you could share with us. Um, yeah, the, the entire show, the entire series that uh, we shot in Africa was, I mean, every day we would wake up excited as hell about what we were going to do that day. A lot of times we didn't even know, um, but we were, we were always just so excited about that show, but it, it was, um, I would say the more dangerous experiences that I've ever had, uh, in filmmaking came, you know, when I was in Africa, um, geez, there were. I shouldn't say there were so many, but there were, we had a lot of up close and personal um, experiences with the wildlife over there. Um, I was charged by black rhinos, which they are a very, very aggressive and temperamental animal. Um, Charged by rhinos, charged by elephants. There was one afternoon uh, we were telling a story about the um, conflict between the lions and the Maasai in uh, East Africa. And, Um, Part of the story that Ivan was articulating was that during the day, uh, lions are innately afraid afraid of humans. I mean, a a six-year-old girl can push an entire pride of lions off a kill. Um, But once you get closer to darkness, once you get closer to night, then, you know, the predatory instincts of a lion kick in, and then that's when most lion attacks on people occur, or at night. So in the middle of the day, we go up to this, um, this lion kill, and Ivan delivers his points and he pushes the entire pride off, which was like 10 or 12 lions of all age groups. And I mean, he just walks up to him with a stick and the entire um, pride just, they, they flee like a herd of whitetails. Um, but we go back at dark and then they're a little bit more brave. And Ivan approaches this kill and they're not going off. A few of the younger ones, you know, scare off into the bush, but there's these two females who they go to the top of the hill where they drug this kill and then as Ivan gets closer and closer, like they're not going anywhere. And all of a sudden they just come down the hill right at him. And they end up getting probably six, seven yards from him before they stop, which is really, really rare um, with lions. When we were in Africa, we were, <coughs> excuse me, um, we were, like I said, we filmed lions and, and rhinos and elephants. And a lot of the biologists and animal people that we were with, especially with rhinos, they would say, you know, if a rhino charges you, obviously it's scary. It's a, you know, one ton animal running right at you. But if you stand your ground, then more than likely it's not going to run into you. There's a chance that it will obviously, but more times than not, they'll, uh, (laughs) 
they'll veer off and go in the opposite direction, which is really surprisingly difficult to convince your your body to not run when your mind is telling you to run. But with lions, um, when they come, they very rarely stop. And Ivan's been around lions his entire career. And he said he was very, very lucky that, I mean, they were, like I said, six, seven yards, 15 feet from him before they hung up. Usually when a lion charges the way that those two did, um, they would, you know, they, they jump on you and they kill you. So that was, um, that was a, that was a scary experience. My biggest, where I felt the most uncomfortable and uneasy was when we were filming in Mozambique um, we were telling a story about the conflict between fishing villages and the Nile crocodile because the human population in Africa has exploded such that there are, I mean, they're overfishing the rivers, so crocodiles have less to eat, so they eat the people. Um, and while we were in Mozambique, we were, we tried to catch, but we ultimately did, we were successful catching these two big Nile crocodiles, um, but we would catch them in a cage and, uh, we would take the cage back into these little eddies off the side of the river. And it was really, really swampy habitat. We were standing in the river, water up to our waist, uh, vegetation, 10 to 12 feet you know, tall. Can't see. The water's murky and muddy. It's just a real, real eerie feeling. And we, the worst part of it is, is to bait these crocodiles, we have a big 18, 20-foot cage because they're big animals, obviously, and then we'd bait them into the cage with a goat, literally no different than uh, Jurassic Park. We'd cut the goat's throat, <laughs> blood would go all over the water, and we'd stick the goat up in the cage and bait the crocodile, which, I mean, that's the most effective way to do it. But at the same time, like we're filming the entire process, setting up this cage, you know, and we kill the goat and there's blood all over the water and crocodiles have a tremendous sense of smell. I mean, they can smell blood in the water from very, very, very far away, and I'm, I'm standing in this water, waist deep. I can't see more than, you know, 10 feet in any direction, and I'm like, guys, I get that we're trying to catch this crocodile, but we're standing in bloodied water up to our waist. We can't see below us. Like, there could be a crocodile, and we could go under at any minute here. Um, so that's when I felt the most uneasy was filming uh, crocodiles while out in the water, because the thing with crocodiles that I've always made me kind of queasy is they're so, they're such indiscriminate killers. I mean, with like with a lion or an elephant or a rhino, we would be with biologists and animal behaviorists who um, would communicate with us how to react in certain situations. Like I said, with a rhino, you know, just stand your ground. Same thing with an elephant. If a lion comes, you better haul tail because you're probably going to die. Just yeah. certain situations to interpret their behavior, um, and then you you know you can act accordingly. But with a crocodile, like they're, I mean, they're a dinosaur that lives in the water. They they look at you with such indiscretion. It's like I'll kill you or I won't. You can't interpret what they're thinking. Very you binary. Can't hear their body language. Right. Absolutely. You can't yeah. see them half the time because they're underwater. And they're so fast and they're so powerful. So you, I mean, you, you can never predict when they're going to strike or attack. And it was, um, yeah, a little uneasy being out in the water with the crocodiles, but still made for a really, really, really cool story. Did you ever reach a point where you told the, you know, the, the character or the, the person that you're filming, Hey, not necessarily in Africa or any of your journey, any of your journeys, I don't feel comfortable doing this. 
Um, I don't think so. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm young and arrogant and uh, too proud to, to admit that, um, you know, that I, that I do feel uncomfortable or or scared, but I, I, I haven't been in a situation where I've, you know, it's been so dangerous or so scary that I've said, um, you know, no, I'm not comfortable doing this. I've always wanted to, you know, experience whatever it is, whatever danger it is. And I've always been around, um, very, very capable people like Jim, obviously is a very, very successful hunter. Ivan's been around, um, African wildlife, his entire career while we were in Africa. Um, obviously we're with Ivan, but we'd have a team of rangers or biologists, people who were, who had dedicated their entire life, you know, studying this animal. So, you know, I never, and I was never in a situation where I was completely on my own. I was around people that I trusted and who would never put me in a, in a situation where that I felt, you know, completely unsafe. Right. So did you ever have a, a run-in with people? Because obviously over in Africa, Africa is way different than the United States. People are carrying guns around all, you know, all the time over there. Did you ever have a run-in with, let's say, poachers or quote-unquote bad guys? And did you ever have your life feel threatened because of humans over there? Uh, no, never because of humans. Um, I, we were, we'd had several incidents where we'd, you know, we'd catch poachers and that was all part of the, the stories we were telling. Um, but like I said, again, more times than not, we were, when we were hunting poachers, for lack of better words, we had very, very capable um, rangers and special operative type of people with us who could take in control of the situation very, very quickly. So, right. um, those, the, the people that we were hunting, the poachers, the quote unquote bad guys, they were very, very aware of the people that, you know, that we had with us. And like I said, those are the people that we had that, that had our backs are 100% the people you don't want to mess with. So that was, that always gave us peace of mind. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, aside from animals, right. Um, you mentioned you got malaria in Paraguay, was it? Uh, yeah, that, that was in Paraguay. That must have been a different type of scary, right? Uh, initially, it was, yeah, because um, I was down there with Jim. I was with um, another videographer, Matt Zanil from Colorado, and we were down there. We the first, uh, the, we were down there. I think two and a half, three weeks. Um, we had two separate episodes to shoot. The first of which. Uh, we were hunting water buffalo. There was this big bull buffalo that was 25, 30 years old, just old, angry. He's terrorizing the gauchos and the horses and throwing a uh, fence and everything down there on the cattle farms. So um, the first mission was to go and kill this buffalo, which we ultimately did. And we donated to the meat to a tribe in the middle of the jungle. Um, I think the Lingua Sioux tribe, which was really, really cool. Um, they were super, super grateful for all, uh, grateful for all of the meat. And then, um, and this was a, another really, really cool thing that I was really, really grateful to be a part of, um, was we darted a jaguar as part of a jaguar project in South America. No different than lions killing livestock in Africa. Jaguars kill livestock in South America. So there's a conflict between um, cattle farmers and the jaguars. So we were darted the jaguars so you can, biologists and farmers can better monitor 
and understand the relationship between jaguars and cattle in South America. So um, we ended up finishing a few days early, and I think it was around the 4th of July, and it took um, – Jim could get home because he was flying to Canada, obviously, but Matt and I, we were stuck in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay, for a couple of days because there were no flights into the States. And uh, that's when I really started to feel badly. That's when I really started to feel sick. And I, I don't speak Spanish. And I was down in this foreign country in South America. And I couldn't speak Spanish. I couldn't communicate to anybody how I was feeling. I didn't know what I had. They told us the area we were going in, Paraguay, didn't have malaria. So I didn't take malaria medication when I was down there. So I really wasn't sure what was happening. Um, I felt terrible. I was in a foreign country, like I said, couldn't speak the language. Um, so that was kind of a little nerve-wracking. Um, ultimately, I got home. Uh, they diagnosed me with malaria, which um, was kind of scary, but ultimately they gave me a couple rounds of medication, which ultimately killed everything off. So that was um, a blessing. But, yeah, when, it, when I first started to feel bad, like I'd never felt that bad in my entire life, and I, I just I was, I was so far away from home. The day that I started to feel badly, Matt had actually just went to wander around the city to shoot photos, and I, I had started to feel kind of sick, so I just stayed back at the hotel, and I was like, man, I don't, I don't feel very well. You know, the only person I can communicate with, I have no idea where he's at. He's out in the middle of the city. I'm stuck here at the hotel room. Like, this, this is kind of a, I don't, I don't really don't feel too well. This is pretty scary, but um, no, thankfully, we got a flight out the next day. I was able to get home, get some medication and start to feel well. But yeah, that was a, that was a pretty scary ordeal there for a couple of weeks. So of all the places that you've been so far, um, you know, you mentioned those earlier, what's, what's, I, mean, I, I bet you, if I asked you, you're going to say, Oh, there's, there's certain things I like about every place I've been, but is there one place in particular that you like have a, you've overwhelmingly connected to? Um, there's two places, actually. People, they ask me a lot, you know, where's the favorite place that you've been to or, you know, your most enjoyable experience? And I always tell them uh, Kenya and the Yukon. And a lot of it has to do, like you said, I could, you know, I can find positives and negatives to every, you know, country I've ever been to. That's as cliche as it sounds. There's something good you can take away and there are parts that you, you know, don't enjoy. But, um, more than anything, wherever I go, it's all about the the people that I spend that I spend my time with there. And in the Yukon, I've been there four years. The last three years, um, I've hunted out of the same camp um, with my buddy Matt from uh, Manitoba, and he and I have become best friends. And I mean, we go up there for a month out of the year, and we hunt big bull moose and mountain caribou and grizzly bears and wolves. And our camp is on the side of the lake, and we. We go spike camping, you know, for four or five days at a time hunting moose, and then we'll come back to our base camp and fish. And I mean, it's, it becomes less of a job in the Yukon, but it's more of a, you know, you're spending time with one of your best friends, which gotcha. makes it such a, such a cool place and so many, so many cool memories right. um, from, from the Yukon. But then there's, um, on the other side of the world, I guess, um, Kenya was such a, was a really, really cool place uh as well east africa when we got there it was the middle of november which i guess was is the beginning of their spring um in the southern hemisphere so it had just started to rain 
everything was starting to green up, just an explosion of vegetation. It was so, so beautiful. And we spent, I think, a week to 10 days there um, with the Maasai, uh, telling the story, like I said, about the lion-Maasai conflict uh, in East Africa. And I ended up meeting a guy there, a Maasai, named Danny. He's, it was really, really cool because uh, he and I, my first name's Daniel, and his first name's Danny. He's the same. He and I were both, you know, we're the same age. We were both 26 at the time, and he had went to school to become a wildlife guide, a safari guide. Um, he was really, really passionate about animals and wildlife, and I had a passion for wildlife and animals, obviously, as well. So we just really, really connected um, in, the, in, the, in, the two, in the 10 days that we were there, and it was, I don't know, a really, really cool experience to meet somebody, a Maasai in East Africa, who you kind of realize you're not all that different than um, so that was that was really really cool, and I came away from that trip just really 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 grateful that I got to spend time with him. Awesome. Now, I mean, you're a hunter, right? So I take it all this time away from home, you've had to sacrifice some hunting time, right? Or, or have you been involved in actually, you know, maybe being able to hunt while you're on some of these trips? Uh, I've never been able to hunt on any of the trips that I've been on, which doesn't bother me. Like I said, I, I have I have zero interest in killing anything in Africa. Um, I would like to hunt, excuse me, bull moose one day. That's a that's a hunt. Matt and I, my buddy that I was telling you about, he and actually and I have actually been planning a uh, fifteen day do it yourself hunt, moose hunt in Alaska. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, most of the places I go, I, I have zero interest in, in killing. You know any of the animals that live there? I just being close to them and being able to film them and being able to watch them—that's enough for me personally. Right. Um, but I I, tr- I try not to sacrifice too much um, of my tree stand time. I try to try to set my schedule up as such that I have plenty of free time during the month of November. So it's worked out well so, for me so far. I've only had to miss uh, one November. That was 2015 when I was in Africa. But yeah, I try to try to set aside plenty of time to deer hunt. I guess that's the benefit of, of choosing your old, your own schedule, but how nice is it to, you know, you're gone all this, all this time. Are you even thinking about whitetails when you're out there working? Cause like for me, I, I got a cubicle job, right? I think about whitetails all the time. And are you thinking about those kind of things that we're all thinking about when you're, you know, in the Yukon or in Paraguay or in Africa, are you like, man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a place that most people dream about, but you're probably excited to get back so you can go do what else you love. Oh yeah. Without question. Um, one of the, one of my favorite pieces of equipment or gear or whatever, um, is my DeLorme Enreach, my satellite phone. I can text with, uh, via satellite, which has been a huge, huge blessing and lifesaver for me. Because um, when I'm gone, I'm. It's probably not a good thing that I think about deer and deer hunting as much as I do when I'm gone. I should probably focus on my job more than <laughs> what I what I do. Um, but no, yeah, I'm I'm 100% focused. And, and there's always something to do, as you know, in the whitetail right. woods. Whether I'm gone on a trip this time of year. You know, I, I'd be asking my brother and my dad if they'd found any sheds, what's on the trail camera, are they doing any habitat projects during the summer, it's food plots, 
Um, you know, if I happen to be gone during the hunting season, I can see how they're doing, what deer they're seeing, what deer are showing up on trail cameras. So my end reach has been a real lifesaver because I can, I can kind of, I can keep tabs on what's going on. I can kind of satisfy my whitetail fix while I'm, you know, while, while I'm on the way on the trip. Gotcha. Talk to me about salt of the earth. It's a short film you made a couple of years back. Um, and what I'm going to recommend is for all the listeners to go search it. It's on Vimeo, right? Yep. It's on Vimeo. Yep. Uh, go check out that, uh, short film that, uh, that he made. Why don't you, why don't you tell us the premise of this short film? Um, it's a film that I did two years ago and it was really uncomfortable, <laughs> for me to do it just because my personality is such that I don't like to be in front of the camera. I don't like, um, being the center of attention. I don't like drawing attention to myself. I kind of like to, to hang back. I'm a really private and, um, reserved person, but, uh, I made that film. It's kind of the mythology of who I am as a, you know, as a person, as a hunter, as a deer manager, as a conservationist that kind of looks back at, you know, where I came from as a hunter, the decisions that I made and how it impacts not only my future as a hunter, but um, the relationship that I have with the land and the animal, which is, which is something that's really, really important to me. So I decided to put that story together one, because um, I, as a filmmaker, I really wanted an opportunity to, to make a film and tell a story that wasn't necessarily, you know, a documentary. You're not over somebody's shoulder capturing things as they happen. Um, that film, Salt of the Earth, is mostly scripted. Like I had an idea of the story that I wanted to tell. I knew exact shots that I needed to get to tell that story. So that's how, you know, that's how I put the film together was I had an idea and I got to bring it to life um, how I, you know, how I saw fit. So that's kind of what the film was, was an opportunity, an opportunity for me as a filmmaker to make a film, to tell a story, to really, you know, stretch my wings creatively. But at the same time, I, it was about my journey, my mythology as a hunter and my relationship with, uh, with the land and animal, which again has always been very, very important to me. Right. So it's been a couple of years since you've made that uh, film, can we expect another film or I don't know, any type of chronological, you know, chronicling of your, of your land or of your, uh, of you as a hunter, I guess. Oh no, nothing, no more of me. Um, I, that, that salt of the earth, that was my one and only time to be in front of the camera from here on out. I'm, it's all, me behind the computer and behind the camera, but I have a film that I have not yet finished. I'm editing it, editing it now. I need a couple more pickup shots. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because I want to release a trailer and then I'll, and then I'll release a release date for the film. Um, but it's, it's another idea that I've wanted to tell again, from, from both perspectives of, you know, of, of who I am and what I do as a filmmaker um, and as a hunter. And it's kind of the idea behind the film is that how do you kill something that you love? Right. right. I mean, that's kind of the conflict that all hunters can relate to. 
but it's, you know, like I said, I, I have trouble articulating it. It's hard to describe to people and I'm going to try to, um, touch on those emotions and express those feelings through film. Um, so that's the next film. I'm almost finished with it. I have a few minor, uh, tweaks and adjustments to make to it before it's finished, but yeah, that should be, I'll post that. I'll release that here in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully that's, um, it's an idea that I've had for a long time now, and um, I'm excited to hope, hopefully it makes sense. I really don't care if people like it. I don't make, I don't make films for, for people to like it. Obviously, it's cool if they do, um, but films like these passion projects that I like to work on, um, they're more ideas that I like to try to prove to myself if I can tell that story, can I do it well, and um, yeah, just stretch my wings creatively. So hopefully, hopefully it all comes together and I can, and the, the story makes sense, but we'll right. see. Right. So where's your next trip, man? Where, uh, where are you going next? Uh, Colorado at the end of this month, I guess, end of February will be uh mountain lion hunting. Mountain lion hunting. Sounds interesting. Yep. Where else? Any, any other places that you already have on schedule for 2017? Uh, nothing, nothing too crazy as of yet. I have a couple of things in the works that aren't official to speak on them. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about the Colorado hunt for mountain lions. I've never filmed mountain lions before. It's always a hunt that I've wanted to go on. Um, I've always really, really been impressed and fascinated with all big cats, mountain lions, jaguars, cheetahs, lions, tigers, all of them. Um, so I'm excited to be around a mountain lion in their habitat, in their environment. I'm also excited because it's supposed to be on horseback, which I haven't been on a horse in, since I was six, seven years old. Right. So it's going to be an adventure to see how I handle bouncing around in the mountains on the back of a horse for 10 days. <laughs> but it should be a good adventure. Well, I tell you what, Cody, man, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and, I guess, sharing your story. Oh, yeah, man. Right on. I appreciate you having me. Huge shout out to Cody for uh, taking time out of his day to come on the podcast and share those stories with us. I know I really enjoyed it. Hopefully you guys did too. Now, before I get into the rest of these thank yous like I usually do, I recently had a conversation over the phone with Randy Newberg. And if you don't know who Randy Newberg is, he is a hunter just like me and you. He lives out in Montana and he is a figurehead for this Keep It Public movement. Um, he's He really has gotten behind all of the hunters and uh, is trying to be a voice for the hunter and really all people who use public lands. He's an advocate for public lands and um I had a conversation with him, and I'm going to share some of this conversation over the next two or three or four podcasts uh, with you guys, uh, just so you guys get information about this this federal land transfer, this keep it public movement straight from the horse's mouth. So let's hear what Randy has to say. Dan, a lot of people ask, why, why is there this debate going on over federal lands about uh, disposal, transfer, whatever you want to call it? Uh, some people call it the Keep It Public movement. And what it is, is there are legislators in the West who feel that public lands are a liability. Uh, they, they just 
philosophically, ideologically do not like uh, public ownership of land. And they and people who are backing them are looking to Congress to do something in that direction. And so we see legislation that comes forward about sell the public lands or transfer the public lands to the state land boards of the West, which can be a whole nother discussion. Or in a larger, kind of more silent way, is completely defund the agencies in charge of these public lands so that they cannot be managed properly. And therefore, it makes it easier to make the case that we should sell them because they're not managed properly. Well, the lands cannot manage themselves. And, and so it's it's more of a political effort and a philosophical, ideological idea of why people want to do it. Keep an eye out for uh, that little segment towards the end of the podcast uh, next week as well, as I have some more information to share about this Keep It Public movement, this this land transfer, and why people who listen to a whitetail podcast, this is mainly a whitetail podcast, but you know my goal is to expand it to all hunting, including, you know, with a, with a, with probably a bow hunting theme. Cause that's where my passion is, but other types of hunting throughout the entire United States, including the West, but more importantly, why this keep it public movement is even important for somebody on the East coast who may never even visit one of these Western states or step foot on public land. So, uh, keep an eye out for that. Huge shout out to Exodus Outdoor Gear and Exodus Trail Cameras. Huge shout out to Ripcord Arrow Rests. Huge shout out to Deer Lab. Uh, those guys make it possible for me to do what I do, and I really appreciate that. Huge shout out to each and every one of you guys who takes the time out of your day to download this podcast and listen to uh, an idiot like me talk for a while. Other than that, check me out on Facebook, check me out on Twitter, check me out on Instagram. If you want to be on the podcast and do a product review or a hunter profile or a BS podcast, a BS session podcast, hit me up on Facebook, send me a message, and you, I usually respond in a couple days. Thank you very much, and remember, this Keep It Public movement is very, very important, so... Like the movement says, remember to keep it public.